Well, so tonight we have Liz Houston here with us. Um, Liz wears so many hats that I think she's had to build an extension onto a house to store all of the hats. Um, veterinary technician, um, mentor, activist, author, speaker, uh, rogue traveler. Um, so we're here tonight to talk a bit about mentoring in veterinary medicine, as well as a number of different exciting and potentially controversial topics. Mm -hmm. I think um, that's fair to say. So do you want to do you want to give us a bit of a, a blurb about yourself? I suppose I don't really know much about our audience. Uh, a lot of a lot of our guys, our guys, listeners are UK based. And I suppose yes. at its core, this is an emergency medicine podcast. Um, but we're not we're not pedantic here. Um, so who are you? We're not? No. Oh no, you're going to be really disappointed uh. if we're not pedantic here. <laughs> I am the lead pedant for sure. Uh, I'm Liz Houston and as you, as you said, uh, road warrior, traveler, speaker, that is my primary role these days. I, I do a lot of speaking. I'm trying to do a little bit more consulting. It's, it's kind of difficult in the veterinary industry. Uh, veterinarians, I think, as a general rule, believe they can do everything themselves and don't really need a lot of help. So they're less likely to uh, to hire an outside consultant to help them uh, become more efficient or work with their people more or to set up something like a mentoring program. And so, but that's the kind of thing that I really like to do. I am passionate about mentoring. I was the chair of the, the co-chair of the mentoring committee for the, in, the emergency and critical care Academy of which I am a member. And I really enjoy helping people along their career paths. I, I don't presume to think I can help people along their personal or emotional or mental health <laughs> path. That is definitely not my area of expertise, but I do enjoy helping people achieve their professional goals. And a lot of the topics I speak on these days and a lot of the contact that I have with uh, professionals in this industry, whether they be assistants or credentialed technicians or registered veterinary nurses, is about how they can achieve that next step in their career and, and, you know, how to work effectively with the people who are out there to help them, like mentors. Do you typically work primarily with uh, technical and nursing students or are you working across the board with assistants, with veterinarians, veterinary students? Yeah, it's pretty, I haven't had the opportunity to work in academia, which I, uh, regret to some extent, I would really like to, I think I would really enjoy that environment and teaching veterinary students. Uh, but I haven't had that opportunity mostly because in the U.S. Um, there aren't that many veterinary schools. And so it would necessitate a, a move and a pretty big life change to be able to work in one of those schools, which is, yeah, it's a, it's a little unfortunate, but it's okay because I have access, I guess, to a, a lot of different people in the veterinary industry uh, through my, a lot of social media. Um, I, I administer a few groups on Facebook and um, we probably have somewhere between 
there's a lot of overlap between the groups, but my largest group has more than 17,000 members. And most of those are technicians, credentialed veterinary technicians. We also have registered veterinary nurses from other countries, uh, from the UK, from Australia, from New Zealand. We have a lot of veterinary assistants in those groups as well, in addition to some veterinary students and veterinarians. So I feel like every day that I'm interacting with people in those groups that I'm I'm doing a lot of teaching. And that's really my my goal with administering those groups is to be able to teach and mentor and really advocate for the gold standard of care in every instance that we are able to provide it. That being said, there are obviously times that we can't provide that gold standard of care. And then I really enjoy the challenge of helping people advocate for their patients and finding a way to get as close as possible to that gold standard of care. And so that does involve a lot of one-on-one communication, Sometimes it's, uh, you know, talking via message. Sometimes it's in discussions in those groups where we get amazing feedback from all kinds of people participating and really just seeing the broad, just getting that input from so many different people, such a broad spectrum of our industry. It's really amazing for me. Uh, It's really opened my mind and eyes to what's going on out there in our industry. And I think it's made me a better advocate for 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 the profession and a better mentor for people when they come to me asking about how do I how do I get my veterinarian to pay attention to evidence right how do I get my veterinarian to stop prescribing tramadol alone for dogs postoperatively how do I get my veterinarian to stop boxing down cats those types of things are other conversations that I'm involved in as well which I also consider mentoring to some extent. Nice. Oh man, you've touched you've touched on a couple of things there. I really want to flesh out. So, okay. um, <laughs> f- for the uninitiated or for those not in the know, um, here in the UK, the preferred nomenclature or the I suppose legal nomenclature is veterinary nurse. Um, in the USA, preferred nomenclature is veterinary technician. Yeah, I don't know about preferred, but legal is more accurate. So oh, well. currently in in the US varies from state to state. But if you hold a license to practice as in in a veterinary practice not as a veterinarian, you are some sort of credentialed veterinary technician. That's also true in Canada. So in all of North America, currently we are credentialed technicians of some kind, either licensed, certified, or registered veterinary technicians. Got it. Good. So I suppose the the Facebook groups now seems to be where a lot of discussion is happening. And I suppose it's a natural extension of that medium and this whole foam, the free open access education movement, you know, getting out there to provide people with information. But I really like what you had to say there, that it's a snapshot of what is actually happening in practices. And there are a lot. There's a lot of people with different backgrounds have been practicing for a long time with a lot of different preferences. And yes. uh, I suppose I've recognized but never truly valued, well, maybe not valued, but 
put a finger on that that point that all of these people who are coming and asking for help really are a true representation of you know people on the front lines doing veterinary medicine um yes so having an opportunity to interact with them is priceless yes i think especially for you know, not that you're in an ivory tower, but working in emergency and critical care medicine is such a bubble. Um, and it's so advanced what we do there in taking care of the most critical and most fragile patients. And it's different from what we see in general practice or what we see in other specialties in, in internal medicine and in neurology. They have different issues and and different kinds of fragile patients, right? The ICU is where all those people cross over. So in some cases, the criticalist is dealing with all of those and the advanced practice technician or the, criti the critical care trained technician or nurse is also getting that overlap. But if you work in emergency, it's a whole different spectrum of, of patients that you're seeing, clients that you're dealing with. And um, I believe the staff is really different. You have a different mentality when you work in emergency than you do in, um, in general practice. And I think if you work in emergency plus critical care, it's again an even different mentality. I've worked in emergency rooms where it's just been treat and street, right? We can't keep yeah. them. We don't have 24-hour care. Where's that Serenia? Right. Exactly. Exactly. The gastrotini, as one of my old doctors used to call it, uh, we need a sub fluids <laughs> and serenia. Uh, and then if they're really sick, maybe they get a little uh, metoclopramide as well, right? Woo. And then you send them on their way um, because we're just treating empirically. We're not doing diagnostics. We're not really trying to figure out what's going on. When you add in the critical care aspect, this is a patient we're going to be managing. So we can't be really cavalier about what we're I don't mean to I don't mean that in a in a bad way, but we can't be as empirical in our treatment choices because we have to think more a little bit more long term. And I do think as if you work in emergency, you can get a little bit tunnel vision around just get them out of my emergency room, right? Make them feel better, get them out, then they're the the regular DVM's problem uh, to deal with later or some other specialty when you have emergency care, when you have the ICU or those other specialists right there with you <laughs> um, who are definitely going to be coming to you about what you did in that emergent moment, you know, and talking about your choices, it kind of changes your decision tree, I think, a little bit. Just from what I've seen working with veterinarians and definitely as a technician, I think about that in terms of something very, very basic. So this is something that is a real, really hot topic of discussion among veterinary support staff, credentialed technicians, vet, veterinary registered veterinary nurses, assistants, uh, and, and maybe even you guys, I don't know, but uh, the taping of an IV catheter. Oh, so this, that, was, yes. that was the most <laughs> controversial post that we've put out, was that IV catheter taping post. It was more uh, vitriol and hate for yeah. that, that taping method oh, yeah. than um, anything I've seen. 100%. Now, coming from the emergency side, right? You have an animal that presents to you, they're, they're seizing or tremoring or dead, 
right? You, you have to get that vascular access no matter what you do and how you secure it is like in that moment, whatever, however you can secure it, right? And nobody's thinking about the longer term, well, when this animal wakes up, when and if this animal wakes up, they regain consciousness, they're going to be moving around, they're going to be doing, you know, normal dog or cat things. And how is this going to, will they be able to move around with this thing in their leg? Yep. Are they going to pull it out? Is, are we going to have a whole other problem? Um, so that's another area, I think, where um, people need that uh, broader thinking, right? They need to open their minds to those those ideas of, of what happens down the road. A, a lot of it, I really think, is imagination. Um, and I think imagination and, and empathy kind of go together because you have to put yourself in the place of another being, right, to feel empathy. Um, and the same thing goes, I think, for thinking about how can I make this patient more comfortable and make sure that I don't have to poke them 5 million more times mm. and I don't have to restrain them in a way they don't want to. And so looking long-term, and I think a lot of us aren't trained to do that in school as technicians. Um, we're, we're not trained to do that in school. You know, we learn the skills. They can't, it's a two-year program. They can't possibly teach all those things. Do you know, we learn the skills we need to learn. We learn the knowledge so that we can pass the test and we can get our license. And then we get out into practice and we learn whatever we're taught by the people around us. So I want to be that voice around people coming out of school and, and or being stuck in their little tiny practice, their one doctor practice. They're not learning other things. They only know one way of doing things. And, you know, they hear all the time my least favorite phrase in the world. Oh. We've always done it. Okay, so just <laughs> doing it this way, right? Yep. And I think that's a huge part of participating in these groups or in a relationship with a mentor is to open your eyes to the world beyond your world, beyond your only your experience and learning about other people's experiences, other forms of medicine, other ways of taping in an IV catheter that are going to work just as well as my way, which is clearly the best way, but I'm open Obviously. to other people. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the best quotes that I heard, and I, I can't say who it came from, but it was someone asking an anaesthetist how they felt about a certain drug, and they responded, well, I have no emotional attachment to drugs. And what a <laughs> statement. Like, you know, I do what I do because I feel it's the best thing right now, but I have no emotional attachment that prevents me from doing something else. And I think that's a really great way to practice. I've done it this way, but I'm happy to do. And that's a great thing about science. I'm happy for my mind to be changed at any time with appropriate evidence or demonstration. Right. But now, how did you learn that? Did you learn that in school? Is that something you were taught? Is that something your your parents taught you? Or did you have instructors or mentors that kind of helped get you to that point? I think I'm just an obstinate scientist. And um, <laughs> my research in undergrad before vet school was on animal behavior. So I was very interested in that. And mm -hmm. I suppose just over time, it's been an accumulation of 
reading on VSPN and reading on Vin and talking with mentors and talking with other people. And, um, you know, I went to the evidence-based veterinary medicine conference, the first one they had over here in England, and just following mm -hmm. all of these movements. And it's a total mindset thing, isn't it? That, um, mm -hmm. We were quite fortunate to have um, a really good, dedicated ethics and evidence-based medicine stream in school and then also the opportunity to do more elective afterwards um yeah so i think the combination of all of that and me just being um a stubborn ass in general yeah. <laughs> um and yeah. again the the word yeah. skeptic i think is is thrown around a lot incorrectly and to be skeptical means that you don't accept or reject anything at face value so it's you know it's middle ground i'm happy to go either way but i need something more yes yeah i agree and i think for me it's not something i learned necessarily in school i have a liberal arts undergraduate degree and so it wasn't about evidence and it and it wasn't about uh really you know, being exposed to something that would prove something one way or the other, but there was a lot of interpretation, right? When you read literature, you have to interpret what the author is trying to say, what is, what's the message behind it? Is there a message behind it? Maybe not. Maybe it's fluff. Maybe it doesn't mean anything. Uh, that, I think, informed me a little bit as I got into this career, but I was lucky enough to work with you know, one of the founding members of the Evidence-Based Medicine Society, um, Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine Group. And I think being exposed to someone who is so focused on that and at the same time so interested in passing that message along and mentoring and teaching made a huge difference for me. And I saw how you can do that, how you... I don't always achieve the goal of not being super pedantic <laughs> uh, about it, but I saw how that was possible, how you could present evidence in a way that was just evidence that was dispassionate. This is just what the, what the studies are showing um, at the same time, getting your message across uh, without being too, I, I feel like I am emotionally attached to drugs, some drugs. So there are some, like, I love Meropitin. I don't yes. know what to tell you. I love it. I mean, like, really do have a love affair with the, with that drug. <laughs> All right, hold on. All right, and you need to tell me right now your top five favorite drugs. Okay, Meropitin, fentanyl. Uh, pick your benzo. I like benzodiazepines uh but benzodiazepines excuse me um that's three propofol probably and i'll add it's not really a drug but i'm going to cheat and add uh, cbd at the end <laughs> very well um yeah we got a lot <laughs> of yours? we got a lot of overlap there so yeah <laughs> definitely um i do prefer midazolam to diazepam personally um yes mostly because I find it to be more uh, versatile. Not that there's anything wrong with diazepam. I just like that I can um, jab it in a muscle or up a nose if I need to. Um, oh, I one. can I put one in place of de uh, propofol? Dexmedetomidine. Sorry. Love it. Go ahead. Continue. <laughs> yeah, so I'm 100% on board with the benzos, the meropitans. Um, I'll throw in lidocaine because um, I love oh, yeah. some lidocaine. Um 
methadone just because we use it a lot more over here and i just think it's such a fabulous drug um and i would say metatomidine as well because we we tend to use more metatomidine than dexmedetomidine over here in the uk but in, it's pretty practice wide so yeah it's a you know like the who the who list of essential drugs it's like the veterinary medicine list of essential drugs right there yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think so too. And you know, it's interesting because when we went through, I think you in the UK had a little bit of the drug shortage problem as well, which we have had in the US and which it looks like it may be continuing a little bit because uh, some of the manufacturers have now decided they're not going to distribute uh, some medications to the veterinary market. So it was really interesting to talk people through new protocols, new uses for drugs, finding different drugs, finding other alternatives. Uh, that was a whole, that was, that consumed our groups for a long period of time mm. with how to do this. Particularly, I don't administer the group, but the veterinary anesthesia nerds is a fantastic group. And that was a lot of the, a lot of the discussion in that group about how I can't, like, I feel like I can't do anesthesia because I don't have my Pyramu opiates. I don't have that I have always used. Uh, and we all know that the safest anesthesia is a safe anesthetist, right? It's a, it's a, the safest drug is the drug you are most familiar with Absolutely. if you're going to use it. And so that was really a scary time for people to, to be doing veterinary medicine without the things that we were the most comfortable with. Well, so we lost isoflurane over here for a short period and people, oh. um, well, you can imagine, like it's probably um, one of the most prescribed medications in general practice. So um, that was a troubling time. And I imagine there was a lot on the, the boards as well. You know, what do we do? Are we doing Tiva? Are we buying in Sivo? Like what, what the hell do we do? Right. And the decision to do that is involves so many other things because it's a huge investment. You have to buy an entirely different vaporizer. You can't just pour SIVO into your isoflurane precision vaporizer. Uh, so then it's a that's a whole bigger discussion. Thinking about then going down the down the line going forward. If I make this huge capital investment, I'm going to be married to this. Yeah. Capital investment. And is it, am I ready to be married to it? Is this what we want to do? Is this something we just have to do? Uh, it's, it's scary. And it really did to me, it highlighted how dependent we are uh, in what, and, and how important it is for us, again, to open our minds to other possibilities and potentials because we really can't afford to be that dependent. Uh, so we need to, we need to be fluid. And we need to be thinking outside of the box more often, which means we need to talk to more people with more experience. That's another really great thing I think about the groups and about uh, being a part of a of a community. You know, so many of us are just in our little practice, our one doctor practice, our two doctor practice. We don't participate in the larger community. We don't attend CE events. We're not members of our associations. So we don't meet those other people. And I have just been so enriched and have grown so much in my um, membership in the Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care Society, for example, and interacting with, you know, with criticalists across the world, right? It's so amazing to have that opportunity to be able to reach out to somebody and say, hey, I have this 
patient, this problem, this is this presenting to me and I have no idea what to do. One of the groups I'm a member of and you're a member of as well is that veterinary ECC small talk group, which is very international and a lot of case discussion in that group with doctors presenting cases and saying, you know, I have no idea what to do. I'm in a, you know, rural clinic in Pakistan. I have three drugs and I have... Yeah one surgery pack and what do I do? Uh, and that is just such a fascinating, it's fascinating to watch those discussions develop because it really is a mentoring relationship for a person who is iso truly isolated, but can reach out and, and have that interaction with people from all over the world. And people, I mean, you know, like you, like, like other really, really experienced criticalists, people who really know what they're talking about and who have a lot of experience in that area. And it's just incredible to have that available to you. Yeah, it's incredible how much the, the Middle Eastern and the Asian countries have taken up in these groups. And um, I suppose that's a, a, or this would be a good time to emphasize kindness when responding to these posts, because <laughs> you don't know the person's background and you get there can be some snappy responses. On the flip side, it is often difficult to interpret text and emotion and meaning behind text. And I think I oh, can come so off true. a little antagonistic sometimes when really I'm just a bit curious. So I need to work on that, I know. But um, don't you think that's true of all of us in emergency and critical care medicine? I think we are often interpreted as uh, short or terse because we are so used to just getting to the point. Yeah, fair enough. We had, um, I suppose, case case example tonight is uh, we had a cat referred for um, collapse and came in bradycardic, hypothermic, and you know you just get things done. You got your AFAS, you got your TFAS, you got IV fluid, then you got your blood work, and within ten minutes um, you got the diagnosis of septic peritonitis, and it's just. Um, you know, we want it, we want it now, we want it quick and we want it good, um, which you can't always right. have altogether. But um, but in a case like that, in a case of septic peritonitis, that speed can is the difference between life and death in that cat. Because if you have that diagnosis within 10 minutes, that means you can start broad spectrum antibiotic therapy right away, which we know is correlated with survival. Yep. And you can work towards stabilization for surgery rather than stabilization for, you know, oxygen therapy or for a echocardiogram the next day or something. All of these things that I think of in my mind when I think of collapse, right? Um, but now I know, oh, I just have to get them to a point where I can anesthetize them so that we can fix this issue. Uh, it really changes how you're looking at the case and what you're doing for that case. And it really does mean the difference between between surviving or not, or Absolutely. could. Well, so now now we're, we're on a common theme, and, <laughs> and correct me if you think this is wrong, but um, team dynamics. Mm -hmm. So we, we had talked briefly earlier about the mentoring, about the, um, long-term effects of the actions we make. Like, is there some blood on this IV catheter that I'm taping in? Hey, maybe I should change that for some fresh tape because that's a really good bacterial growth medium. Maybe in this <laughs> right. sharp pay, I should think about placing it 
in a more anatomical position because there's about 90 inches of skin between <laughs> uh, the outside and the vein and maybe the one centimeter of IV that's in the vein might dislodge if I put it in this way. Um, but on the, the other side, in the, what, what you've picked up on and what seems to come up a lot is talking with our colleagues about the decisions we make and communicating effectively about the decisions we make while we're making them what the long-term plan is so what's your how do you teach that what's your approach to people who say hey i really want to be better at being a part of the decision making process or i'm concerned about this how do i bring this up in a and i suppose the the big issue is always ego or pride so how do i bring this up get behind that ego or get behind that pride and present this in a way that is non-threatening and beneficial to everyone. Right. I think that is a continual challenge. And I think that people who know me and have worked with me are laughing that you are asking for my advice on this topic. Um, because, <laughs> <laughs> um, because I am not great at, uh, I don't think that there is any place in advanced medicine for ego. And I don't think my ego has any place there, but I also don't think anyone else's ego does either. And that's something I have to say that I learned as I moved into advanced practice. I learned it when I was working to become a VTS because I really do believe in, and maybe you recognize this along your journey to become a, a diplomat, um, the further you go, the more you realize you don't know. Um, and that was, for me, very helpful to completely, or I won't say completely, I'm not, I'm definitely not that evolved, but to remove a lot of my ego from, um, in, in terms of medicine, that I just can't possibly know everything that's going on. Um, and I'm not great at questioning things that I don't understand um, in a diplomatic way, particularly in an emergent situation. So <laughs> I have, it's something I have um, worked on being better at, but I'm not great at it. Um, and I'll give you an example. I was working with a, I was working in an emergency, an overnight shift, and we, I was working with a relief vet, so a doctor who didn't know me um, and whom I didn't know very well. And we had a dog who was hit by a car. And so the dog presented to us, you know, yeah, <laughs> quote unquote, shocking. And this doctor ordered 40 milligrams of solumedrol to be given to this dog. Oh, boy. And, <laughs> and I... Um, I declined, but not really in a nice way. <laughs> uh, but it, um, I, it, it's interesting because in that practice, and this is a whole other topic of discussion, um, that was an open practice. So uh, where we encourage family presence with the patients at all times. So the owner of the dog was present as well. So I had to stop the administration of the steroid that I think was going to be harmful for the patient without making the client lose confidence in the doctor. Um, and I think that is something that, um, that I had to be very sensitive to that 
in that practice, all of the technicians and all of the staff members have to be very sensitive to, because especially in emergency, this person doesn't have any relationship with with me, with our practice, with this doctor, certainly because this doctor is also a relief doctor, right? So they're not even going to be around to deal with the with the consequences of that decision. And um, so it was that was definitely challenging. Um, I uh, just said very quietly that um, and this was several years ago, I said very quietly, I said, well, uh, I will tell you that you know, most critical care diplomats are uh, advising against the use of steroids in shock and um, in acute injury. And so maybe uh, you want to rethink that. Maybe we can start with a fluid bolus. And uh, this doctor got very defensive and flustered in that moment. Um, And I then said, okay, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not working on this dog anymore. You have there are other technicians here. They can help you. Um, we didn't even have solumedrol in the practice, so uh, the doctor instead gave um, 40 milligrams of dexamethasone, and the dog surprisingly wasn't better two days later. Um, and uh, so then the doctor who came on ended up administering um, an NSAID and the dog subsequently, yeah, perfed and died. So, um, you know, it wasn't my fault. Um, And I did speak up and advocated as I could for the patient, but it's a difficult situation when there is, when there is ego involved, this doctor was not used to working with experienced technicians who had a lot of, knowledge, not as much necessarily as they do, but enough that you should pay attention and listen. Um, And, uh, you know, it's a difficult situation. I think so much of it depends on your relationship with the people that you're, that you work with. So when you have a relief vet, it's difficult. And I know you work relief, you do locum work frequently. And so I'm sure you feel this, that it's difficult because you don't know the staff. You don't know their um, their level of experience, their level of knowledge. They don't know you. They know the letters behind your name. But other than that, they don't know how you practice, what you do, what your thought process is. And that makes it really difficult. I think the longer you work with people, the more you recognize that there's a way you can talk to some people and there's a way you can't talk to some people. And there are some people who I truly do believe it comes down to ego. There are some people who just have too much ego wrapped up in what they're doing and um, they get defensive and they can't hear what you're saying. Um, And that's just hard. And there's nothing more threatening than a woman with an opinion, Liz. Oh, that's a that's again a topic for a whole other uh, podcast. <laughs> that's a, that's just a yeah. I mean, that's a whole other issue in and of itself. Um, and it's interesting in our industry that is really becoming more and more female dominated every day. Uh, that is still an issue. The the patriarchal and misogynistic uh, st- structure of our society is every single day and that is it's difficult yeah I, I, i've been locuming full-time now for about six months and 
I, the balance is always trying to communicate effectively why I'm making the decisions I make and maybe why I'm making a slightly different decision than what the day vet has ordered because I, I only do nights um, and weekends ah. so it's the double whammy of being both a locum and a night vet so it's like well this guy's a vampire we hardly see him and no one knows who he <laughs> is and so I, I try to be very clear about what I'm doing but it's a, a delicate balance between like over explaining and I really try hard not to be patronizing and I, I think I'm doing a fair job of it. And if anyone if who's listening has works with me, please let me know. Um, and I try to say, hey, I, you know, I'm not trying to tell you things you already know. I just want you to know and be comfortable with the decisions that I'm making. Um, and I'm yeah. not sure everyone always is, um, you know, using things like small doses, three two three micrograms of metatomidine for a, a dysphoric or stressed out post-operative patient like that does freak some people out but for me I'm very comfortable doing that and I'll offer to monitor the patient and walk them through it or um, something like IV paracetamol or acetaminophen um, use yeah. I use a lot especially for my GI patients so yeah it is it is delicate and I suppose it would be nice if we had more of those human factors slash communication slash uh i don't even know what to call it in in medicine and just it's it's really hard to get past that ego i i still feel it i have to i have to stop myself and like visually mentally take a step back and be like this person's not attacking you as a human being they're just curious or they want to know or they're not familiar with it like you don't need to freak out but I still I still get that gut feeling of like I'm being attacked you know yeah it's natural it's human I think we all do that um we're all none of us is evolved enough to not feel that you know we have to be all we can do is control our react control our outward reaction right um, and that is the challenge. I think that's the challenge um, for everyone. And I don't think that's true just in veterinary medicine, but maybe it's more challenging in veterinary medicine because of the people who are drawn to veterinary medicine. Um, and many of us have great people skills. Um, we got into it because we love animals and not people. And I can't tell you how many times I see posted in a lot of these veterinary groups, oh, I hate people. I just hate people. I hate people. I'm like, oh, you know what? You work with a lot of them. And I have yet to meet the dog or cat who comes in with a credit card attached to their collar by themselves. So there are always people uh, that you're going to have to deal with. Um, it's just not, it's not a job for, <laughs> you know, it's not a job if you don't like people. Uh, this isn't the place for you. But I think that we've made a place historically here in the industry for a lot of people who just don't like other people yeah but a a quick shout out to some intern mates of mine who decided that would be a spectacular business model in that uh, (laughs) the owners can download the consent form from the website um, maybe send a pre-signed check or a a debit card pop the the pet in the taxi and then they show up at the clinic and golden (laughs) but it's great isn't it like I love like that's one of my favorite things about this job is 
meeting people and talking with them and helping them like you get to listen yeah. to their story you get to meet some interesting people it doesn't always work that way um uh, but it's it's a really big part of the job and a really a, a real um privilege i think to to be in a position to help people and their pets um they don't mm-hmm. always want to be helped but you know if they yeah. if they're willing to then we will uh we'll get it done yeah yeah i agree and i think again i do think that when you're locoming when you're doing relief um it it becomes exponentially more difficult just because i know that people who worked with me the more people work with me the more they understand me you know the more they they get where i'm coming from and um there's more leeway, right? But when you work relief, that leeway just doesn't exist. I do think that being in a in a practice that encouraged family presence, so having people, clients there all the time, doing everything in front of clients, really does uh, force you to be more open and verbal with what you're doing because you just have to explain to the client what you're doing, much less the staff. Uh, I mean, just drawing blood, right? We don't draw blood from human jugular veins. Um, But when we take a dog or a cat and we start poking a needle in the neck, clients get a little disturbed by that if you don't explain to them what it is that you're doing. So I will say that I got really good at verbalizing what I was doing while I was doing it. Um, which I think is helpful in the long run, just for being more open and and um, talking through what you're doing while you're doing it. For uh, also for other things that are happening outside of clients' uh, view. So yeah, do you use many teaching scenarios? I mean, what's your your usual approach or suggestions for? Yeah. So, so for me, like when I was working in that um, in that clinic that really encouraged the hospital, that it really encouraged the family presence, uh, I would bring newer staff members, newer technicians along with me into things I was doing um, and then showing by example. So, you know, I would talk to, I would show them exactly how I went through everything that I was doing. So all of the, you know, they would see how I was talking to them. I always ask, are you afraid of needles or blood? Because if they bother you, I'm going to be putting blood in a syringe. I'm going to be using a needle. If you don't want to see that, you know, you maybe you want to turn away or whatever. I want to let you know that if you pass out, I'm not going to take care of you. I'm focusing on your pet. <laughs> you <laughs> so sit there on the floor. I would rather you did- yeah, I would rather you didn't pass out <laughs> because then we have to call 911 and it's a whole thing. Um, so, you know, if you're nervous. And so people then would see how you interact with, with clients and they can take that along. And then I really, I think the power of debriefing should not be underestimated. I think that taking the time after an event to debrief. So we learned this in from Recover, for example, the the, C, the evidence-based veterinary CPR uh, standard that uh, debriefing is really important. Going through what happened, how did we handle it, what went well, what didn't go well. And I think taking the time, even if it's a very brief amount of time, to say, okay, wh- let's talk about what happened in that room with that client. Or can we talk, now that we're not in this emergency, 
can we talk about why it's not, why I don't think it's a good idea to use steroids in the case of acute injury and shock? And you can explain to me your experience and why you thought that was a good idea. And we can have a discussion about it when we're outside of the emergency. The emergency has passed and we're in a place where we can have that discussion. So I believe in the power of the debrief very strongly. I think that it works for emotional outbursts as well. So if something happens and you had an emotional outburst or a staff member did um, something, they were angry at you to um, after the emotion has dissipated to take that time to go back and say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry I reacted that way. Can we talk about what happened? Or can you explain to me why you reacted that way? Yeah. Can we talk about what happened? Um, I think all of those things go a long way to relationship building and to helping um, all of us understand what other people are going through. And I think it helps people learn of you know how to move forward in this industry. It, it happens, right? We all have those emotional outbursts. We all have things we disagree with uh, that we want more information about. And sometimes it's not helpful in the moment to say, um, <laughs> hey, you know, why haven't you gotten this anti, why haven't you gotten this capnometer fixed that we really need for CPR? You know, you don't start that discussion in the middle of the code, right? You have that discussion after everything is over, but it still leads to better, better medicine all around and better relationships. So that's what I really rely on debrief. And, and I think, um, and you know, it's so funny because the groups are a great way to do this is case-based discussions, I think are so important. And so every time someone presents a case in one of those groups, it's a time to, to learn about not just the medicine, but how to handle that case. Like you said, with team dynamics, right? Um, hey, doctor, why were you do, what were your technicians or your nurses doing while you were doing all this stuff with your patient? Or why did you, you know, ins why did you insist on doing X, Y, Z when your technicians or nurses were telling you that wasn't a good idea or whatever? Um, so I think that those discussions really help to open people's eyes to um, the potential of what they might be, do might be able to do differently, both medically and in terms of how they're dealing with and managing their staff. 100%. Um there was a, a podcast from a, a military doctor on one of the smack podcasts and she talked about a, a hot debrief and a cold debrief like oh. these guys coming back in from really traumatic experiences she didn't want to sit them down and put them through like a a full debrief right then and there but they do a very quick summary and then later when everyone's cooled down a bit they come back and, and mm -hmm. do more of a thorough one but i suppose we can't you can't really underestimate the effect of things like codes and trauma on people. And I think you can can be very distressed by that level of, of trauma. So that's a really nice way for people to talk about what happened, talk about their feelings, talk about what they might be doing differently. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm 100% on board with that. And um, yeah, in my in in where I was educated, anytime there was a code or a crash, there would be a, a debrief with everyone who was involved in front of everyone because you know the crash alarm mm -hmm. comes off and the whole building comes running um sure 
and they would do the debrief and it was always very positive very supportive you know uh, you know I think maybe I could have done it or maybe I could have reached for this sooner or maybe I could have communicated um, this a bit better um, right oh really going down the rabbit hole now um, I know <laughs> <laughs> so we've we've talked a bit about mentoring about some um, team dynamics and then you touched on earlier um, roles of nurses and technicians in the hospital and things that certain nurses are able to do and things they do and maybe they shouldn't be doing and I will say from from our side is um, a lot of the nurses I have worked with or work with um, very regularly and very proficiently do things like central lines, pick lines, long stays, nasogastric tubes, nasoesophageal tubes, um, all sorts of, of drain management and yeah. um, imaging as as well. So, you know, even basic ultrasound use for free fluid checks or, or bladder checks and, and urinary right. catheters and, and things like that. And um, I, I think it's fantastic <laughs> you know that <laughs> one the fact that the culture exists that that is something that happens and why shouldn't it like not to minimize the the difficulty of these skills but you know if you can place an IV catheter you can place a central line if you can place a, a lateral saphenous catheter you can place a pick line like there's not a yep. you know there's maybe a couple of different micro skills involved but it's not a, a huge step so why would you think that people who are, uh, are able to do that proficiently couldn't take that right. within the letter of the law to the next level right i agree and it's interesting to me because you know that all of those skills, those technical skills that you talk about, these advanced technical skills that uh, your nurses are doing. But I know in, in the UK, or at least I think in the UK, um, is it true that a registered veterinary nurse can't do a cystocentesis? That is a very good question that I don't know the answer to. I um, think that they are, that they cannot. I think and that to me seems crazy. You know, if I can, if I can place a urinary catheter and I can stick needles in vessels, in arteries, in veins, um, if I am, if I'm trained, you know, and I understand the risks and the, and the precautions to take, why can I, why would I not be able to do a cystocentesis? And, and certainly in the U S veterinary technicians and even veterinary assistants who are trained do cystocentesis all the time. Um, as an advanced practice tech, I know on our on our list for the Emergency and Critical Care Academy, for example, um, abdominocentesis is on the list. And again, that's a skill I think that if you're if you're trained, um, there really isn't anything precluding you from doing abdominocentesis or thoracocentesis. The risks are real, um, but if you're aware of the risks, you're knowledgeable about the risks, you you have been trained, you know your anatomy, um, then I think that it's that those are things that technicians can do and and, and RVNs should be able to do. So it's it's very interesting to me um, that the difference in the laws between the UK and 
um, the U.S. And, and in Canada, obviously. Now, there are lots of states in the U.S. where uh, there are skills that are restricted to technicians. So you have to be a credentialed person to do that. Assistants can't do them no matter how well trained they are. So, for yeah. example, in California, um, in California, credentialed technicians, registered veterinary technicians can do dental extractions. And that is not true in, in most U.S. states. I don't know how, what what's the law on that in the U.K. Uh, no. And I suppose it, it's probably due to the the surgery aspects. And uh, right. like I, I could not ask my nursing team to say, OK, this patient is young, healthy, routine castration, um, no, no real concerns, anesthesia wise. Will you please induce and intubate them? Um, because they oh they can't they are not permitted to titrate an anesthetic to effect because that would be prescribing so that is not wow. allowed I could say please give five mils of propofol and then intubate but I could not say give propofol to effect and oh that is intubate. so interesting they can intubate so in California they yeah, can monitor. in California. Yeah, in California, the RVT, you have to be a credentialed veterinary technician or a veterinarian to induce anesthesia. To, so to actually give an anesthetic agent IV, you have to be either a veterinarian or a credentialed technician. Um, but an assistant or a credentialed technician or a DVM can intubate and monitor. Yeah. So those things aren't um, – but we, but we can definitely induce anesthesia. That is so interesting. I see the point and it's a slippery slope, right? It's a very tight line. And I understand that there is potentially, or maybe there was a movement in the UK to allow RVNs to do feline neuters. Is that right? Oh, I think I heard something about that. <laughs> and that crosses the line. That's surgery. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure. It's interesting. I, you know, speak at conferences um, because I'm a huge advocate for uh, technician utilization using your staff to the fullest extent that you can and I remind people that there are four things in the U.S. and in Canada that are limited to veterinarians surgery prescribing medications uh, making a diagnosis and making a prognosis so those four things are veterinarians only and so in my mind legally Everything else is the is in the purview of the credentialed veterinary technician. As long as you're not doing one of those four things, everything else is yours to do. So your doctor shouldn't be, you know, doing uh, shouldn't be doing blood work, shouldn't be placing those lines that you talked about. You know, shouldn't be uh, placing nasoesophageal uh, lines or NG tubes. Um, you know, those are things that technicians should be doing, leaving your veterinarian free to do one of those four things that are restricted to them that only they can do. Um, and so I push that a lot with technicians because a lot of technicians I know work in practices where the doctor does everything and uses them basically strictly as restrainers. Ugh. That's all they do. Right. Ugh, is right. <laughs> and then is it any wonder, is it any surprise that technicians don't stay in the industry that they because they're not being allowed to to do everything that they're trained to do or that they know to do. And it is very frustrating for us. And it's interesting because there are vets who um, 
want to use their staff more, but they don't even really know what their staff are capable of doing. And they get really scared uh, about their license, right? What if something goes wrong? What if the, what if they do it wrong? What if they, you know, as I have done, I mean, I have made mistakes in my medium length career, right? Placing an NG tube in the, um, chat in the stomach. Yep. Right. And then starting to use it. So I didn't do that in a vacuum. I didn't make that mistake in a vacuum. I, the, you know, the, the radiographs were taken, the radiographs were checked. Everybody thought it was fine. Um, it wasn't fine. It's a mistake. So that, that's what I tell veterinarians. It can happen to you. They can happen to your staff. Um, but not using your staff because you're so afraid that a mistake might happen is a, is a even bigger mistake. Can't live your life in fear, Liz. Um, oh, are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that that comes down to to staff training a lot as well, doesn't it? Because if you are going totally. to be working with your team and you are going to be asking things of them, then you should be setting very clear parameters, either each time you're asking or as as a practice protocol about how those tasks or procedures should be done. So. With that. And then the trick is making that time and space to do that training, um, ensuring that the training is happening. Um, and that means you have to staff appropriately, right? And you have to have people who are willing to teach and who are good at teaching and training. And that's an area, I think, where, where, where we fall short. Uh, where we, and part of it is there's just a shortage of, of trained, qualified yep. technicians. It's a chicken and egg argument, right? Why is there a shortage? Well, people are leaving the, the profession. Why are people leaving the profession? Well, a big reason is they're not being utilized. And so they're going somewhere where they can be more, they can utilize more of their skills and knowledge. Um, and by the way, be paid appropriately uh -huh. for their skills and knowledge. So then we come back to, well, I can't find enough people, so I don't have time to do the training because I don't have enough people to, to keep going with the work while I'm doing the training. Well, if you do the training in the long run, you'll be able to do more work. So you're going to have to accept a short-term consequence, which may be a drop in revenue for a month, two months, maybe while you're doing that training, but that's going to be more than more than made up for as you move forward and you're able to utilize your staff to a to a larger degree, meaning you're going to be able to do more things that only doctors can do. And the things, honestly, that make the clinic more money, right? Doing surgery, prescribing drugs, those things make the clinic more money than, you know, placing an IV catheter. So let your staff do those things that they can do, allowing you to go and actually make the revenue that you need to make so that you can see more and more patients. Yeah, and how much does it cost to turn over someone, like to get someone brand new That's in the door? Answer. Yeah. Like it's it's madness. Right. And if right. you're sitting there at the end of the day complaining yeah. because you're an hour behind because you're having to write notes, well, like all that time you were doing those tasks that really shouldn't be your responsibility then right you know you could have used that time more efficiently um what i right. will say if you're in if your staff if you are the boss and your staff are making mistakes the only 
person whose fault that is, is yours. If you're in charge and your staff are making mistakes, it's either because you haven't trained them, you haven't given them the tools they need to do their job, or you haven't explained to them why it's important to do their job a certain way. And if you've done all of those things and they're still making mistakes, then it's your fault you haven't fired them and replaced them with someone who can do the job. So it, precisely. <laughs> yeah. if, if you're sitting there and you're blaming your staff for not working well, look to yourself first. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're totally right. And it's, the, again, I think um, th what we're still talking about is ego, right? We're still in that space where people aren't able to get past um, blaming other people because they're too wrapped up in not blaming themselves. Yeah, maybe what they need and is I a good that's practice a big consultant. Part. <laughs> maybe I think you're right. Um, and, you know, they, we need to recognize, we really need to recognize that none of us can do our job without the other, right? I know in the UK, they run um, a lot of like nurse clinics for things like vaccines and things like that, right? You have nurse run kind of days oh, yeah, or like, whatever. That is a, a yeah. massive part. Behavior consults, weight consults, routine checks, post-op checks, bandage yeah. changes, vaccines, routine health care, yeah. dental care. Yeah, and we don't. There's a we. That's a missing piece, I think, in the U.S. veterinary market. We don't have like whole days that are just run by the technicians, um, which, which we could have. They're much shorter appointments. Um, they're um, and the doctors should be catching up on work or doing whatever. Now, a lot of practices have quote unquote tech appointments where somebody comes in for you know suture removal or. Um, or a vaccine or something like that, um, but not, it's still not really uh, autonomous as I kind of picture it in the UK. The behavior consults, as you mentioned, that's a huge area where technicians can be um, really involved in kind of running that whole part of the, of the practice and making a real profit center for the practice. Uh, Laser is another one, right? Doing laser therapy. You don't need a veterinarian to actually run the laser over the patient. And you can have a technician doing laser all day, 15-minute appointments, boom, 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 all day long. And, you know, if you sell them as a package, you need a ton of money and you're not spending the same kind of money you are on having a doctor do it. Um, so I think that's an area where where people aren't really seeing beyond um, their their box, right? Beyond their normal way of doing things and looking to different ways of, of maximizing the staff that they have and using them really to their full potential. Oy. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, um, it's a constant struggle, isn't it? And we all, I mean, the ultimate mission is just just providing good patient care. So how, how can we do that and go home at the end of the day and feel good about what we've done and like each other and get paid well and <laughs> not feel terribly stressed out and uh, oh that's the dream yeah. that's the dream how do we make that happen yeah i think uh, you know a lot of it comes down to uh i really do believe it a lot of it comes down to utilization using your staff appropriately but we cannot separate that from paying your staff appropriately at the same time so we have to be we have to find ways to uh, pay in pay a living wage to make sure that people can stay 
this profession and support themselves. Uh, right now in the U.S., it we can't we don't have that in as veterinary technicians. Um, I don't think it's very rare to find places where people do this as their only job um, and be able to live on their own. Um, you know, without a roommate or uh, without a second or third job, yeah. most technicians I know have two or three jobs just just to make ends meet, just to be able to to live um, in an apartment and to buy food, uh, and that isn't sustainable for us. And that's a big, a really really big reason why people are leaving, um, because we can't we can't make that work long. And I don't know if that's true in the UK as well, but it's a real difficulty here. Yeah, I think our, our nurses are paid better, but our vets are paid worse over here. Um, <laughs> far... Oh, that's how we do it. Oh, okay. So that's how we do it. We just well, pay associate vets less. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. So like my, my starting salary was £28,000 um, for my first year and went up to thirty two the second year. Um and I, I suppose I, I did some locum nursing when I first came back to England in 2011. I was getting about £12 an hour, but these were in, in okay. smaller um, general practices. So, you know, that's far and above minimum wage in, in the UK. Yeah. And, you know, if you figure one and a half pounds to the um, right. or one and a half dollars to the pound, well, pre-Brexit um then yeah right um, <laughs> you know you're probably bordering on an equivalent of 20 to 25 dollars an hour I suppose for for a, a yeah. well-paying job over here um right. please please correct me if I'm wrong anyone who's listening because I am by no means an authority on on nurse wages but from what I understand um there it's still a very similar problem then the salaries are not great especially um, some groups are more notorious than others, and other places pay pay really well. You know, in the the mid thirties, um, thousand pounds per year, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. depending on on where you're working. So, and what kind of debt do you come out of school with? Uh, I I can't say because I was living in Florida when I applied to school over here, so I had to pay uh -huh. international fees. But ah. So it was about £3,000 per year for UK students to go to vet school when I started. And wow. then it got increased to £9,000. Um, but yeah. to pay it back is all income based. So if you don't meet the income threshold, then you don't pay anything. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's very different from how the US Well, yeah, looking works. at um, my debt is, is a lot. The amount of debt that... that U.S. veterinary, U.S. veterinarians when they graduate from school, it's staggering. And um, I know the that our national leadership is looking at it um, because it's it's again it's not sustainable. Um, and what's going to happen to our profession if we don't if we have people who stop going to vet school because they can't afford they can't afford to do it? Yeah, it'll be just like the dentistry crash. And I don't think I was around or alive at the time, but when either dental applications or cost of, of going dropped off and, and the same thing with law schools, they just had to close schools down because people weren't weren't going and they couldn't 
couldn't sustain the program and when and man you guys over there with these bloody um private veterinary technical schools going out of business like i can't begin to imagine what yeah. what those students are going through like to be halfway or almost done with with a program and then the doors are locked the day you show up to class yeah. like that must be horrible yeah it yeah it's i mean there there are a number of a number of really big problems facing our profession going forward um for sure and uh you know hope hopefully there are people a lot smarter than i working on the on answers to those questions because uh it's uh can be really daunting when you start to think about what you might do to fix our future we're going down the sad rabbit hole now so let's um let's brighten the mood slightly (laughs) (laughs) well so what i mean what what keeps you going um you know what what gets you out of bed and gets you excited about this career each day yeah for me it's helping people uh do the best that they can with what they have. I am a huge believer in um, patient advocacy, that it's our job to be our patient's voice. And I like to encourage people to do that. So many of us feel uh, like we can't talk to the veterinarians as an equal, that we don't have a voice in our practices. And so I like to remind people that they are the ears and eyes and hands of the veterinarian while the veterinarian is doing their four things. So we, it's our responsibility to be in touch with our patients, to communicate to our clinicians what's going on with our patients and to advocate for what we think our patients need. So for me, encouraging other people to do that is huge. And I think a big part of that is uh, helping people achieve advanced status, so advanced certifications, because I think the more that we know, the more intelligently we can talk about our patients with veterinarians and the the better advocates we can be. So those are the things really that keep me going is, you know, hoping that I'm making a difference in the lives of animals everywhere by helping people be better at their jobs. So that's really, I think, really what keeps me going. That's very selfless of you. (laughs) Well, you know, I wish I was doing more clinical work. So I would, you know, I, but there's, I, there's only so many hours in the day and the week, so um, just got to get up earlier. A, lo- a lot of the other things I have going on. <laughs> I if do. You're, if you're not up at four a.m. each day, then what are you doing with your life? <laughs> yeah, other th- other things. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, my my motivations are considerably more more selfish in that. Um, I suppose I went I went sugarcoat like the last six months I've just been been locoming a lot doing a lot of nights and it's had a, a genuine negative effect on me I can really tell when I work too much and I thought oh, I'm young I'm still in my my career and I can work lots of nights and I can do this and you know my my wife is so incredibly supportive and we got a lot of friends and um, so I, I felt fairly well balanced but um, you know, I could feel myself getting shorter, more anxious, mm-hmm. more angry, mm-hmm. and that's just not who I am. So mm-hmm. on on the flip side, while those things are happening, the things that really keep me going are just 
meeting people. Like I, I, as much as I love placing central lines, calculating CRIs, using my ultrasound, getting creative about problem solving, coming up with a diagnosis, um, and like feeling good about that, I really love those interactions with people where where you can explain something in a way that makes sense to them, or help them with a question, or make them uh, make someone feel heard. And I think that's a really big issue for both human mm. and veterinary medicine is letting someone know that you're listening to them and you're taking them seriously. I, oh, that mm. that feeling I love to hold on to. And anytime I'm feeling really crummy, you know, you can flip back through those those highlights of um, those those patient interactions, um, which are easy to take for granted. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's also very selfless. Well, you know, I wouldn't do it if it didn't make me feel good. <laughs> right, well, exactly. <laughs> but you know, I guess that's human nature, I suppose. Um, yes. Well, so is there is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Do you have to run off? Um, any other things on your mind or things you I wanted to announce? I have to run off. I have a lot of other things on my mind, but we can save them for a future podcast because I think we um, we can talk about a little about unionization in the future. Um, I don't know a lot about labor laws in the UK, so that might be an interesting topic. Uh, and of course, uh, True Passion Projects is using cannabis in veterinary species, and I'm co-editing a textbook with the amazing Stephen Satal and Dr. Kasara Andre, and that we hope to be getting ready to publish um, next year, so we can talk about that as well. Excellent. Liz, thank you. Thank you, Elliot. I appreciate it so much. It's great to talk to you. No, like you are one of the busiest people I know, so um, thank you for coming to share your wisdom with us for this um, hour and 20 minutes we've been talking now. So have a nice day and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks very much. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Vet ECC podcast. Uh, we hope to have Liz back soon, hopefully with some friends, and we can chat more about her upcoming book and some other projects. Uh, I'd be very grateful if you would leave us a review um, either on iTunes or Podbean or Stitcher or wherever you like to listen to podcasts, wherever you get us from. Um, subscribing is also very helpful, really just to spread the good word. Um, otherwise, thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>